You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. This is Dr. Carrie Bedian at the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, joined by my two charming, stunning, radiant, and just absolutely glowing co-hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Oh, you just give me a big smile, Carrie. Thank you. (laughs) And Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. How are you doing? Good. We were, so we were just talking about things that give you palpitations that really, there are no literally literal palpitations <laughs> where your heart just starts doing a ping pong ball tour around your chest. And what we were talking about is things that do that, even though you are in absolutely no personal danger whatsoever. <laughs> and I was, I was telling the girls, I saw some random Facebook, Instagram, whatever of a woman who is bungee jumping and the person behind her was holding the video camera um, or the phone or however they were taking the video. And oh, I just dated myself. Didn't I want to say, video camera camera. who has that um so she like goes and she runs and she jumps off and and the person is walking right behind her all the way to the end of the the little platform that was jutting out that she dove off of into this huge ravine gorge i don't know what it was regardless in my opinion it was someplace you should not be diving into and i watched it and i'm like and i had serious palpitations and it just it made even thinking about it makes my stomach kind of flirpy and um is that a word flirpy i like that flirpy (laughs) it describes a multitude of sensations that i have yet to find any other word for but it just made it all flirpy and and even thinking about it now there are internal flirps going on um (laughs) so what have you guys seen heard done whatever that no personal danger to you but we'll send off those sensations. I guess this is a situation that like mentally, I know there's no personal danger. As I have gotten older, I have more and more trouble driving on those interchanges that go way up in the air and they're like all crisscrossy and everything like that. There's a lot, lots of those in Texas, right? There are a lot of them in Texas and I am a master at avoiding them. <laughs> we may get there five minutes later than whoever else we may be driving against. <laughs> and it's one of those things like I know, like in my heart, I know I'm safe, but like I really have to be like focused. I have to get myself in the zone. <laughs> I think of like in the movie for love of the game, when he's like engaged the mechanism, that is literally like the kind of mindset I have to get myself into. And I don't know if it's because like over the past 10 or 15 years, and it's really weird because I'm really not worried about it breaking or falling or anything like that. And literally the moment if I'm riding in a car, I generally will close my eyes now. And the moment I can feel us descending, I'm fine. The moment we descend, it's like absolutely everything's gone. But it's the it's like the sensation I think most people get when they're on a roller coaster. But I don't need a roller coaster. All I need is a flyover. It's crazy. So my mom tells this story about how when she was a little girl, she would go on trips with my grandmother and my great aunt, and neither of them would drive across a bridge. And so they were going down south 
And this is, they lived in the Midwest and they were going down South and they were in like, I don't know, Louisiana, New Orleans, somewhere in that area where there was a big, long bridge, just one of those low, low level bridges that goes across a ton of swamp, whatever body of water it was. That's Louisiana. Yes. Yeah. And she, she said that they would um, both dive under the sea and they would have her steer as she was a little kid. (laughs) so that they could get across the bridge. It's like they wanted their worst fears to come to life if they're letting a little kid drive the car across the bridge. Seriously. But but she said it happened multiple times. And um, so now she won't drive across bridges because she was so petrified when she has PTSD from that experience. <laughs> She's totally fine. But um, what experiences have you had, Abby? So, you know, I was just thinking I can categorize as you were talking. I thought of two or three more and it all has to do with heights. I guess you say I have, I mean, I, I do have, a, I guess, a fear of heights. And so just recently I was in San Francisco and going across the Bay Bridge, I had that same kind of feeling like I didn't, you know, I didn't really duck down in the car, but I was just like, it just feels so weird that you're driving over water and there's all these cars and it just, it was such a, it's a beautiful bridge, but it was so huge. I sort of had that like, you know, like, okay, I'm ready to get off this bridge. The one other experience I had a long time ago, and physically, I guess I could have been in danger, but when many moons ago, when I was on my honeymoon, we were in Barcelona and there's this church and it's since finished, but it was like La Familia, some really fancy church in Barcelona. And I can't remember the name for it, but they had these circular stairs that went around and almost like a turret, like you start, start really high and you take these stairs like all the way down and there was no rail there. Oh my! So you're on these circular stairs going down and you can actually, I think it was in some movie, they actually had a, a scene where somebody died in that stairwell and went falling down because there's actually a hole there that you could fall down through if you, you know, we, it's a small hole, but you could fall down through there. I just remember, I almost got the sense of like I was feeling dizzy as I was coming down. I was like holding onto the wall or something. It was just the weirdest feeling, but it had to do with looking down and seeing that, you know, I mean, I doubt you could easily fall down in there, but you could have. And so it was very, I came very unhinged then. I was really glad to be down to the bottom on that. (laughs) When I was little, I was scared. I I still am not fond of them, but stairs that don't have a middle. As a kid, I was absolutely terrified of them. I was so scared. I was going to like slip and fall through. Yeah. And as an adult, we've looked at houses that had staircases like that. And I'm like, nope. Like I can do it if I have to, but the idea of having that type of staircase in my own home, I'm like, mm. oh, that's funny. That's the house I grew up in. <laughs> it's got the, you're talking about the gaps between the actual stair steps, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Actually, the movie that those stairs were shown in, I was thinking it was the Da Vinci Code, but it was actually the follow-up called Angels and Demons. Oh, and they yeah. actually showed that staircase. And it's like a circuit. Like I said, it's a circular staircase. And I can't remember who the main character is, but I think he gets shot or some villain gets shot in that stair thing and falls down. And I told my husband, I'm like, see, that's what I was scared about the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Amazing. All right. So talking about things that don't make my stomach flirty. Susan, do we have a question of the day. Yes, we are going to do a couple of them today. All right. So hello, a little long. So I apologize. I'm 26. I have two children, eight and six by my first. I had her when I was 17 and the second at 19. My husband had a vasectomy after our son was born as we thought we were done. And a few months after my son was born, I was diagnosed with PCOS. I had multiple cysts on my ovaries and cycles were either every couple of months or every month just depended on the months. Anyway, we just had our first natural FET cycle. 
Our egg retrieval left us with 10 embryos untested, all four AA. We transferred one for AA on October 17th. I've had negative since day four DP. She's a serial tester. My lining was 1.1 trilaminar. I ovulated October 11th, cycle day, six days after my period stopped. Six days later is when we did the transfer. I was on baby aspirin, ciprofloxacin, medrol, and letrozole. I'm pretty sure this is a chemical pregnancy. Is there anything you ladies would recommend doing? I don't really want to do an ERA right away. And my clinic said we should jump into another one right away. But any other meds I should ask about, anything I could say, I don't understand how it didn't work. And I'm definitely heartbroken and also thankful we have nine more tries. I've been on a prenatal for a few months now in folic acid. Thank you very much. I enjoy listening to your podcast. Was this a genetically normal embryo? Was it tested genetically? Untested. Untested. So I think probably we would all agree about this. That's probably the number one thing that we would probably wonder about, mm-hmm. even in a, you know, the role of a genetically untested embryo, because even in a perfect world, um, there's about a 50% chance that that embryo could be genetically abnormal. And it can look beautiful. I mean, there's nothing from the outward appearance that would tell us it's genetically abnormal. And so, you know, you had a lot of embryos, which is great. But if you look at you know, the numbers and you say you had 10 embryos, well, probably genetically five of them would be abnormal. So in theory, you could go through five single embryo transfers, it'd be unlikely, but five in a row, if the doctor just happened to pick or the embryologist happened to pick the ones that were genetically abnormal. And morphology has nothing to do with chromosomal normality. So there's no way to know without doing that testing. Yeah, so I think it makes sense to test because at least in our practice, your pregnancy rate would jump from what we would quote initially as a 50% pregnancy rate with untested embryos to about a 65 to 70% chance with tested embryos. So I think that's the biggest thing that you can do that will make the biggest impact in your success rate. But if you're in a situation that you don't want or can't test for some reason, I think doing another embryo transfer really is the next step. I think in the world of untested embryos, doing at least two transfers before doing something else, whether a hysteroscopy or an ERA cycle or changing how you prepare the lining of your uterus or anything like that is a reasonable thing to do. I mean, you can do any of those things right away. But knowing that there's a 50% chance that this embryo didn't have really a, a, a good chance, doing another embryo transfer is a reasonable next step, in my opinion. Kind of comes down to don't just do something, stand there, like stay the course, just keep going. You have enough embryos, you're going to get to that third kid. What is more likely to give out is your will to proceed than then at this point, your embryo supply. And that is a beautiful, beautiful place to be sitting. And so take a deep breath, take whatever time you need, and then do it again. And you got this. You can totally do this. All three of us have total faith that you're going to get there. You just stay the course. You can do this. Just stay the course. Keep going. Absolutely. All right. Our next question. My first frozen embryo transfer with a PGT normal embryo failed earlier this month. It was devastating since we thought we were getting PGT normal embryos would be the most difficult part of our fertility journey. I have a balanced reciprocal translocation for chromosomes 8 and 22. So we thought if we could just retrieve some genetically balanced embryos, the rest would be easy. During the FET cycle, we discovered that my uterine lining is thin and it took about six weeks of estrogen 
in all four routes and forms to get my lining to six millimeters. The thin lining is suspected to be the reason for my embryo not to implant. What do you do for patients with a thin uterine lining? Is there anything you suggest that I do as I prepare for FET number two? So looking at thin uterine linings, this is a a tough spot. Now, there is normal variation from one cycle to the next. So it is possible to have a really recalcitrant pain in the ass lining. (laughs) And you do the exact same thing again. I'm like, boom, here it is. Look there. So don't discount the random miracles that happen. The other thing is that when someone has a really thin lining, all of us have our individual forms of voodoo is kind of what I call it of what random things do you add in that you like? And everybody's a little bit different. You know, Viagra has gotten a lot of press in the past doing natural cycles. Sometimes people do that. There's a variety of ways that you can go about it. You can get pregnancies at six millimeters. Like a lot, I think a lot of it depends on what is the, what we call in our clinic, the Delta, meaning where did you start and where did you end? So if you have a thin lining and you start out at one millimeter and you make it to six millimeters, You know, the question is, is that really a lot different than someone who starts at five and makes it to 10? Well, maybe, maybe not. We don't necessarily know that data as a field. And so there is a decent amount of voodoo that goes along with once you've tried the different estrogen forms, like maybe you're someone who does a natural cycle and you do much better on that than you do when being absolutely slammed with estrogen. So there's other other ways that we can approach this. The other thing too that I found helpful in an FET cycle is to thicken the lining up is to try and get your own endogenous estrogen, maybe to have some impact on your lining. And you may have mentioned this, Carrie, I don't think you did though, but FSH, um, injectable FSH, yeah. sometimes will help your own endogenous estrogen be secreted and may thicken your lining. And that's sort of the idea with a natural cycle, except it just pushes your body a lot of times to make more estrogen. And usually that actually works pretty well with most patients. It's a rare person that that, that doesn't work well with. But you know, the goal there is not trying to stimulate an egg to get you to ovulate. We're just trying to get your estrogen, your endogenous estrogen high enough that you can thicken your lining up naturally with your own estrogen. I think an important thing to look at is how thick your lining got when you were going through your stimulation because your lining was getting measured as they were stimulating you and there's correlating estrogen levels to kind of be like, okay, well, when you had an estrogen level of say 500, your lining was blank. And so that can sometimes give your doctors a little bit of guidance and that type of thing. And, and, you know, there's some good studies out there that really, I know we all have a lining number we like to have, you know, I love to have eight. I I live with seven, but I've had people get pregnant with linings thinner than that. And, you know, there's some good studies out there that say that our hangups on lining thickness are absolutely unfounded. (laughs) And so realize, as Carrie mentioned, kind of knowing what your delta is, do you normally start off with a lining that's two, three millimeters and you're getting to six or seven, there may not be the same thing. You know, I'm much happier with a six that's a beautiful trilaminar stripe than somebody who necessarily may have an eight and it's heterogeneous and not quite as pretty looking. And so there's a lot to go on and realize that lining isn't the only reason why things may not have worked. I mean, yes, you have a balanced embryo, but 
as the embryo was implanting, something may have gone wrong. As the embryo continued to develop, something may have gone wrong. You know, maybe the embryo was developing and something was not like a vital organ structure was not forming correctly and things like that. But not all abnormalities of embryos are related to the chromosomes per se, that sometimes, you know, despite our best efforts and all our I's dotted and T's crossed, nothing's a hundred percent. So, you know, yes, get your lining as thick as possible, but realize it may not be the end all be all. And your next embryo transfer may have a fantastic chance of being very successful. All right. So on to our topic of the day, which is very timely and in the news right now. And this is the heartbreaking story of two couples that realized they had been transferred the wrong embryos. And each couple carried that respective embryo entirely through pregnancy. Both couples gave birth to healthy kids. And then at three months of life for these kids, they realized what had happened and they swapped babies to go back to their genetic parents. And so whenever, you know, whenever, if ever we see something that happens like this, it's, it's always heartbreaking and nerve wracking. And so what we thought we would talk about today is just what are the, the mechanisms in the lab to protect from all of this happening? And this is something that every fertility clinic takes super seriously. And so what are the things that happen in the lab when let's start with just creating the embryos first? Like what are the things that happen when you are in the process of gathering eggs and gathering sperm to help make sure that it stays with the right names? So some of the most simple things are are the very obvious and that when you and your partner, if you have one, present for egg retrieval, and we're going to be collecting eggs and collecting sperm. Number one, we visually recognize everybody who's there, but we're also checking IDs. And it seems like such a simple kind of silly thing, but it's important for us to be able to see, do we have the right name? Do we have the right date of birth? Those identification cards are are kind of the first step of all of the domino processes that carry on from there. And so generally, you'll actually probably have your identification checked multiple times if you get a, you know, different labs of different things. So, you know, we're going to talk about probably different things that could happen at any lab, but oftentimes you're, as the person who is undergoing the egg retrieval, you're going to get an ID bracelet and, you know, you checking your ID against that bracelet. And then even in our clinic now, you get a barcode that is specifically linked to you and your eggs and your sperm and your embryos that this barcode is going to be transferred and applied to every mechanism that is going to contain your reproductive material. And then for the male partner, you know, as you're about to undergo your egg retrieval, you know, your partner will be taken back to place to collect or will come in with a container. But the same sort of thing applies with him. You know, we're going to check the armband. The person's going to walk, at least in our lab, we'll walk them back to the collection room. Once they collect, they're again going to be ID'd and they're going to have to sign off on each step of the way to confirm they are who they are. And this may sound really funny, but you really need to check because there could be more than one person named Smith in the lab or, you know, you really need to check yourself visually. And that's what we have you do. Yes, my name is John Smith and this is John Smith here. And, you know, make sure your birth dates match and all that, because, you know, certainly our lab 
does it, but makes it even better if you're really, you know, checking and we're checking as well. And then that specimen goes back to the lab. The person who takes that specimen works through that specimen from start to finish. We don't have a different person come in and do different steps. One person gets that specimen, they work through all the way, they prepare the sperm, they sign off that they've checked the barcodes and checked the appropriate things. And then when the person, the embryologist comes to take that specimen, they have a sign off together and they both sign saying that that's this person's specimen. That embryologist takes it back. And then when they use it on the embryos, that same embryologist is the person that does that. And it, like Susan said, there's different ways that different labs do it. But the idea is that at every juncture where any time it's going to change to a different person or it's going to change to a different place, that there's a sign off from two different people. So two different people make sure that it's the right person and the right specimen and it's going to the right eggs and right embryo. I've seen examples of being able to use color coding as well. All of your specimens throughout your entire process are going to have the same, you know, light blue color code and every container is going to have that. So there's usually multiple forms of those types of checks and balances happening in the lab. And when you think about it, there's the physical barriers, there's the on-site recognition barriers like the color coding, there's the requirement that two people have to sign off and check names every time you do something. It's the clinical and the lab teams working together. I mean, before we ever do a procedure, there's always a timeout that happens. And so there's lots of cross-checking at every point. So part of the reason why you you sign in with your ID and you get your name banned and then it's cross-checked multiple times, it's cross-checked while you're awake and it's cross-checked while you're asleep for the retrieval too, because everybody wants to make sure that this gets done correctly. And then once you hit transfer, many of those same mechanisms are in place. So the color coding, the requirement for multiple people to check off, the nice thing during a transfer is you're awake. So you're hearing a lot of that and you're hearing, you know, okay, we're doing a single embryo transfer on Jane Doe and this is what we're putting in. And there's that on-site recognition as well. So there's really, there's quite a few ways. There's um, most labs have some technological form of cross-checking in addition to the human beings who are looking at it on site, the color coding, the scheduling you know, only having one person in a procedure room at a time, all of those things. And one thing that I would recommend for anybody who's nervous, scared, I mean, Abby and I have been through the situation ourselves where our reproductive material was in somebody else's hands. And if there's something that you want to know, like, hey, what exactly does this lab do? That is absolutely a question you can and should ask. Okay. And the probably the best person I would recommend asking that question to is one of the embryologists because they're kind of the bosses in the labs. <laughs> and so they're going to be able to go through all the technical aspects of, you know, at our lab at this physical location, this is what happens from you know, step A to step Z. And they can go through that. And most of them should be able to actually go through that conversation with you pretty quickly. And just having them be able to talk that through to you so that you can kind of in your mental image, see what's happening at each step of the way. And not all labs are created equal. And so if you're wanting to know from a different lab, hey, what are your processes? You can ask. And if somebody won't tell you, then that should be a red flag. 
And I think the other thing to consider is be an active participant in it to the degree you can. So, for example, in the in the frozen embryo transfer, when they come to look at your bracelet, you know, when that person puts the bracelet on, you make sure your name spelled correctly, your birth date's correct, whatever identifying information they have for you and your partner to make sure all that information is correct. And, you know, when they're doing the timeout, because anytime we do a procedure, we call it a timeout and, you know, we say, you know, who's in the room and what we're doing and what procedure we're doing. You know, I know you're going to be sort of, you know, your minds might be in a different place, but I think it's really important to listen to that and make sure that what we say is correct, because that's the time to catch it if we say something that you don't think is correct. So be an active participant to the degree you can. I mean, obviously, when you're asleep on the table and your eggs are being retrieved, you can't be a participant, but, you know, make sure that you are the, your name's correct, your birth date's correct, whatever identifying information they use, make sure it's correct and that they check it. The other thing that's important to remember is that part of the reason stuff like this makes the news is that it is a big deal and it's very sensational and um, it's huge for those families. But it is one episode out of however many, you know, hundreds of thousands of embryo transfers occur in any given year. I think of it kind of the same way in that, you know, there's been over 400 million COVID vaccines that have been uh, doses that have been given out. And you hear about the handful in the news where something bad happens. Well, you don't hear about the other, you know, 400 million minus six where nothing happened, where the person got their immunity and they're good to go. It's kind of the same thing with an embryo transfer and that you hear about the, you know, the unexpected, unfortunate events, but you don't necessarily think about how many times this happens every single day without an issue. The same way that you get in a car you know, there you hear about the big spectacular accidents. You don't ever think about the fact that you've already gone to the grocery store, the drugstore, work, home, you know, wherever six times today and every single time it was fine. So I think it's one of those things where, yes, it's important to know about it, but it's also something where there's there's quite a few fail safes in place. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We always love that you are listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, um, iTunes. We would love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. So please hop on by and leave us a like or a follow and say hello. You can also visit fertilitydocsandcensor.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. We also love episode ideas. So let us know what you are thinking and we want to hear from you. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment. It's not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk with you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.